Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. In Hebrews 10.31, the Hebrews author reminds us that our God is a consuming fire. Throughout time it has been made evident that it is dangerous to encounter him. How can anyone have confidence that God is not going to utterly destroy them if they were to draw near to God? If we were trying to get close to God, how do we know that God will not just strike us down, smite us dead? You may not have thought of that question. It may never have considered it because of particular ways that we look at God. But a lot of those ways we look at God, especially the way he's, been, uh, he's made himself known to the fathers and the prophets and the apostles, is as a God of covenant loyalty, a God of loving kindness, um, as the Hebrew word chesed fam famously kind of refers to, a word used constantly in the Old Testament and for which there are New Testament parallels. The idea there of covenant loyalty, that God is loyal and faithful to the agreements he makes with people. Because throughout the scriptures, God has established agreements with mankind that we call covenants. And in covenants, God has communicated his purposes and expectations, and he is loyal to the covenants that he establishes with people. And therefore, it's very important for us, if we would draw near to God, to understand covenant, to understand what it means to draw near to God and how this all works. And this is especially important as Christians because there's a lot of confusion about how covenants work. A lot of times people conflate different covenants. They'll seek authority in covenants under which they're not bound. And this leads to all kinds of confusion and difficulty. A lot of, of the various changes to the way the assembly works and different practices that people will justify comes from people bringing in uh, things from previous covenants. In fact, to this day, we have people looking for a Christian nation like Israel of old, uh, another way in which uh, covenant concepts get distorted. And so we do well to explore the idea of covenant in the Bible. But to begin with, what do we mean when we say covenant? In English, covenant is a mutual consent or agreement of two or more persons to do or forbear some act or thing, a contract stipulation. A covenant is created by deed and writing, sealed and executed, or it may be applied in the contract. A writing containing the terms of agreement or contract between parties, or the clause of agreement and indeed containing the covenant. In theology, the covenant of works is that implied in the commands, prohibitions, and promises of God, the promise of God to man, that man's perfect obedience should entitle him to happiness. These are from Webster's Dictionary. They speak of a kind of a contractual agreement, the paper version of that kind of agreement, and a theological premise. Now that framing of covenant works definitely goes back to old stuffy Protestant theology, a straw man conception of what uh, they imagined the Jewish covenant looked like uh, if you uh, take Paul and take him at its most extreme. We shouldn't give too much credence to that particular way of looking at uh, of the covenant there. In Hebrew, covenant is the word berit. And it just means covenant, alliance, or pledge in the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon. We're going to look at Berit and its use in the ancient Near Eastern world in more detail in a little bit. In Greek and Syria, covenant is diatheke. And it's disposition, arrangement of any sort, which one wishes to be valid. The last disposition, which one makes of his earthly possessions after his death. A testament or will. It's a compact, a t covenant, a testament. Uh, these are coming out of Thera's lexicon. 
There are some who would argue that uh, the only way that uh, Greek uses, the New Testament uses diatheke is the same way that uh, the Hebrew uses berit. It does seem, in Hebrews 9 especially, the Hebrew author is playing off both definitions of uh, diatheke. Now, diatheke um, ends up taking on this meaning of covenant because Greek didn't really have a one-to-one analog with berit. And so in the translators of the Greek, Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, they took diatheke, which kind of means will or testament, like we use the last will or testament, and kind of used that word, and it gave it a new definition. Um, and so that's why the Hebrew author can talk about that uh, no uh, diatheke is ever enforced as long as a person lives. It, it requires a death, um, which is true of testaments, but clearly not true of covenants. Um, but in general, when we see uh Diatheke being used in the New Testament covenant, um, it testament, so to speak, it's most often being used as the Hebrew berit covenant. That's the idea that's involved. Now, where does this idea of covenant come from? Well, in the Bible, it goes back all the way to the days of the flood in Genesis 9. Um, and ostensibly, when man began to communicate and cooperate, they needed some kind of agreement to entrust cooperation, uh, some kind of a covenant was made. And uh, God has used this type of agreement for our benefit as humans. And the idea of a berit uh, is not just something that's spiritual or religious in the ancient Eastern world. We have a lot of examples in the third and second millennia uh, before Jesus, the period of Abraham through the judges of various covenants. Uh, they called berit. They would be made between a superior and an inferior. Uh, perhaps you've heard of the suzerain vassal treaties. That's uh, what would be included there. Or between two who are equals. In those covenants, both sides had obligations that they were bound to, and each side would receive benefits. And if one party violated the terms of the covenant, the other party was released from their covenant obligations. So what do these kind of things include? Well, uh, between a king and a subject, the king would be bound to protect the subject, while the subject was bound to obey the king and provide taxes. Uh, in covenants between a stronger king and a weaker king, both parties were to come to the defense of each other in case of attack, and they were to attack one another, and sometimes the weaker king was obligated to pay tribute. A biblical example is in Joshua 9 when the Gibeonites tricked the Israelites into making a covenant with them. And what ends up happening is the Gibeonites willingly enslave themselves basically to the Israelites so they don't die. And then when all the uh, Canaanite nations get mad and attack the Gibeonites in Joshua 10, the Israelites come to the defense of the Gibeonites. And uh, God gives them a great victory over uh, the collected kings there. Now, in covenants between equal kings, there's generally mutual pacts of defense if either party were attacked, and also an agreement to not attack one another. So this kind of gives us a good rounded idea of what covenants are. They're mutually binding agreements between two parties, that there's obligations and benefits that are mutually made and received, and that's exactly what we see when we see covenants in the Bible, though the covenants in the Bible generally are covenants between God and man. Before we explore the covenants that are in the Bible, we do well to keep some categories in mind to understand what we're looking for. So first we need to identify who's making the covenant and with whom. Who are the parties of the covenant? Um, what are the obligations of the covenant relative to uh, behaviors? So is there anything conditional about the covenant? Is there a covenant being made that no matter what happens, this is what's going to be done? Or is it dependent upon uh what has somebody has already done or what people in the future must continue to do. Uh, we also can see the sign of the covenant. What indication exists to show that this covenant is continuing in force? What are the obligations that God is putting himself under in this covenant? What uh, does God expect out of the other covenanting party? 
And uh, was it fulfilled? What led to the fulfillment, if anything? So when we look at the Bible, the first place is the Garden of Eden. We see no indication of covenant explicitly. It's never called a covenant. But it's interesting that God makes Adam in the garden, tells him that he can eat of all the fruit of all the tree. The garden's there for him to work. Uh, he just can't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, so you see there, there is kind of an obligation there. You don't do this, you get this. If you do this, there's going to be a consequences. Uh, but since no explicit language is used, we're going to pass over at this time. The first covenant that we see called as such is, as we said, in Genesis 9, uh, 8-17. through 17. It's the covenant made in the day of Noah, also known as the Noahide covenant. Uh, the covenant parties here, God makes a covenant uh, with all flesh of the earth, with Noah, his sons, and all the animals. Uh, this is an unconditional covenant that God was not going to flood the earth again. It doesn't matter what man does, it doesn't matter what uh, animals do, the world will never be fully flooded again. Uh, the sign of the covenant was the bow, God's bow that he puts in the sky, that he will see this bow, and when he sees the bow, he will know uh, that he will not flood the world. He'll remember this covenant, and uh, he will never again destroy the world with water, uh, no matter what happens, uh, Noah and, his, and, his, and everybody else is technically not under obligation with this one. And it's continually maintained. We do have floods. Sometimes they're very big floods, but they're not worldwide floods. They're not even region-wide floods. And so, so far, God has proven faithful to that covenant. And this is a covenant that is still in force to this day. The next major covenant we find is uh, God has now made a covenant with a particular man, Abraham, or Abraham, that uh, he has chosen and also with Abraham's offspring. Uh, we see kind of a covenant language in Genesis 12, although there's a promise. The covenant is actually inaugurated, cut according to the idiom in Hebrew in Genesis 17, and it, we see uh, promises also established in chapter 22. Uh, the covenant was conditioned on the fact that Abraham had been faithful, uh, and therefore uh, that is why God entered into covenant with him, and also many aspects of the covenant would be uh, dependent upon his descendants proving faithful to God. Not all of it, but some of it, um, as we will continue to see. Uh, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. In Genesis 17.10, all the males of, of Abraham's family would be circumcised uh, after the eighth day. The obligation of God was he was to multiply Abraham greatly. He would make Abraham a father of many nations. He would give the land of Canaan to the offspring of Abraham, and that he would make covenants with his offspring. In Genesis 17, God also would add that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In Genesis 22:18, Abraham was to prove faithful to God through belief and fulfillment of covenant obligations. And uh, also, Abraham's offspring was to be faithful to their covenant with God. The same covenant would be ratified again with Abraham's son Isaac, a uh, son with Sarah, and also Isaac's son Jacob, and by extension also the twelve sons of Jacob. So it's not just one child of Jacob, all twelve. In Genesis 26, 28, 46, and 48. And we have seen how this uh, promise has been fulfilled. Uh, Abraham is a father of nations of Midian, Edom, Israel, among others. Israelites received the land of Canaan at the days of Joshua. God made a covenant with the Israelites, as we're about to see. And uh, the blessings are really ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who is the offspring, the seed through whom all the nations there will be blessed in Galatians 3. And all who trust in God and Jesus are the spiritual children of Abraham. And so in that sense, that uh, promise Abraham continues with those who uh, are the Israel of God in, in the church. 
The next covenant of note, like we said, that similar covenants ratified over and over again, is a covenant that God makes with the Israelites. So that's in Exodus 19 through 24, really seen in from Exodus 19 all the way through the end of Deuteronomy. Uh, God makes this covenant with the sons of Israel in Exodus 19 to 25 and following. The covenant blessings in Leviticus 26 are conditioned upon the continued faithfulness of Israel. The fact they would get the land and all these things were already promised to Abraham and would be done, but um, their ability to maintain it and have received blessings in it would be based on whether they followed God or not. Uh, circumcision made the sign of the covenant in Joshua 5, 4 through 7. You could also see, in a sense, the tabernacle temple with the Ark of the Covenant also being a, a symbol of the, of, the existing, of the existence of the covenant at the end of Exodus. God's obligation is that he would be the God of Israel and Israel would be his people. He would give them the land of Canaan for, the, for their possession, driving out the previous inhabitants, and there he would protect the Israelite and bless them in that land. The obligation of the Israelites was to obey the Torah, or law, that was given to Moses. The land of Canaan was given to the Israelites, and when they were faithful to God, they were successful. When they were unfaithful, they were either oppressed or they were finally exiled from that land. Uh, and the whole law and covenant would find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and the fact that it's no longer possible to observe the customs of the laws of Moses, uh, because there's no more temple, no more uh, explicitly lineage priesthood, etc., as an indication of the fact that uh, that this is no longer truly in force. Another important covenant is in 2 Samuel 7, which is the covenant that God makes with David uh, and with the descendants of David. The, condition, the covenant was conditioned on the fact that David had proved faithful to God and uh, the prosperity and the maintenance of that kingdom would be based upon if his descendants also followed God. There was no sign of this covenant given. God would establish the house of David as a regnal body, as a reigning body. Descendants of David would maintain the kingdom, and David's throne would be established forever in 2 Samuel 11 and 7, 11 and 16. Uh, David and his descendants would have to obey God according to the law, to the Torah, in 2 Samuel 7, 14. And yes, the house of David ruled over Judah from David's time, around 950, until the Babylonian captivity of 586. Uh, the reason that that line ended when it came to physical rule is because of the idolatry that they had committed and their faithlessness against God. And it's also fulfilled, of course, is in Jesus of Nazareth, who in, was proclaimed to be the son of David and would be given all power and authority through his death and resurrection and ascension, according to Luke 1, in Daniel 7, 13, 14, Acts 2, 36. Um, and he reigns uh, as king of kings and lord of lords over an eternal dominion and has uh, reigns on that throne forever and ever, uh, having satisfied all uh, requirements and having uh, glorified God in all that he has done. And that gets us to the covenant that God has made with everybody in Jesus. And the covenant that was made was not just for Israel, but for all who would come to believe that God uh, has accomplished his purposes in Jesus, and all will find themselves liable to that covenant. John 12, 48, Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. Uh, it is conditional on the faithfulness of man to the gospel of Christ. Yes, God has already accomplished these things independent of man's faithfulness, uh, but 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, that uh, the blessings are only there for those who know God and who obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews 10, 20-31 talks about what happens when somebody turns away from uh, the truth. Baptism is a sign of this covenant in Romans 6, 3-7 and in Galatians 3, 27. Uh, in this covenant, God remits previous sins, um, 
all sins before baptism, uh, forgiveness of sins when repentance and prayer for forgiveness is made, uh, maintaining fellowship and relational unity spiritually now and in his fullness and his presence in the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection. Acts 2.38, 1 Peter 3.21, 1 John 1.3, uh, and 9, second, and uh, Revelation 21 and 22. Man is to trust that Jesus is Lord and obey all his commandments to walk as he walked, to participate in the body of Christ, which is the church. Romans 1, 5, 1 Corinthians 12, 2 Thessalonians 1, as we mentioned, uh, James 2, 14, 26, 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Uh, we have the forgiveness of previous sin and present sin assured to the baptized, penitent, repentant believer, based upon what God has done in Jesus. And we maintain great confidence because of how God has demonstrated loyalty uh, until this time, that he will continue to show covenant loyalty. And there will be a day of judgment and the day of resurrection to come. These are the primary covenants we find in the scriptures. And so what are we supposed to learn about them in terms of how we live our lives in faith? Well, uh, we need to thank God first and foremost that he has seen fit to make covenants with us even though we are sinful and faithless and, and have gone astray. And that God has loved us and has demonstrated covenant loyalty even when we have not been nearly as loyal to him and his covenant as he has been to us. But... Um, we need to understand how covenant works so that we can be faithful to him in our covenant. Um, this seems obvious, it seems seem intuitive, but it's been missed that covenants are bound on specific parties. When a covenant is bound on specific parties, it's only bound on those parties, it's not anybody else. Uh, a, given, a covenant cannot be imposed upon people upon whom it was not ratified or inaugurated. This is especially when we're looking at the law of Moses. Uh, in Exodus, it's God and the sons of Israel. Uh, the, the sons of Israel demarcated from all the other nations in, in Deuteronomy 7. Um, whatever is bound in the covenant between God and Israel is not bound on Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles are under the Noahide covenant, would be how many would look at it in, up until the days of Jesus. And in fact, in Acts 15, 1-27, this is exactly what is found by the Holy Spirit apostles and prophets in this, in this discussion there. Elders from Jerusalem, they've discovered that, yes, this is how it works. So, issues like the Sabbath, food laws, circumcision should not exist in Christianity. They are not bound on Christians of the nations. This is what Paul tries to communicate in Romans 14-15, Galatians 1-6-9, Colossians 2-14-17. Uh, covenants are only bound upon the two covenanting parties and on nobody else. God has made unconditional covenants. God will do things uh, without conditions, but most covenant has conditional properties, which is the nature of covenant. Uh, so there is the one with Noah and his children, all the animals. That there will be no more worldwide floods, no matter what we do. That's that has been established. But everything else required faithfulness to some degree. Either the faithfulness of like Abraham demonstrated his faithfulness, and that's why God made a covenant with him, or that in the covenant you must be faithful if you wish to continue to receive the blessings. If Abraham had proved unfaithful to God, we would have no reason to believe that the covenant would have been made with him or continued with him. Uh, the Israelites were unfaithful to God. And what happened to them? Uh, they were subjugated by enemies. They were constantly harassed and in distress. And finally, they were overrun and exiled and defeated time and time again. Well, if that is how God has treated people with whom he has made covenant in the past, why should we expect things to be different today when God has made a covenant with all of us in Christ? Uh, some suggest that once a person saved, they're saved no matter what. But in Hebrews 10, 26-31, if you have spurned the Son of Law, Son of God and you've kind of crucified him afresh, there's no expectation of remission of sin anymore because you've turned away from God. God 
is not going to honor that covenant obligation uh, if you're not going to. And if we reject the terms of the covenant, we're rejecting the salvation that we've received. Abraham, the Israelites, need to prove faithful to their covenant, so also do we. Uh, as a second covenant, unfaithfulness in one party releases the other party from obligations. When Israel sinned against God, God was released from his promise to maintain them in the land of Canaan. And he showed great patience and and with them and until there was no remedy. And that is why he removed them from that land in 722, 586, and then in 70, uh, in 132 of our own era. Um, if God treated Israel that way, why would we expect different treatment? And this one's a bit more controversial. There are many who would suggest that any talk of supersession is heretical. But when we read the scriptures, we see that covenants, when they've been fulfilled, are superseded. Uh, in Galatians 3.15, Matthew 5.17-18, Hebrews 7.12-14, Hebrews 9.15-28, uh, the Abrahamic covenantal promise is in Christ, it's seen spiritually. Uh, it's still in force, as it is now seen in the people of God in Christ, in Romans 4. It's particular. In Deuteronomy 4, in verse 2, you shall not add to or take away from this covenant that I make with you. The, the, the law cannot be added to. And so that is why the Hebrews author perceptively sees that there's going to be a, a change in the atonement mechanism, i.e. that we're now uh, forgiven in Christ. There needs to be a new covenant, that the old is, is going away in Hebrews 8. Uh, and many suggest the covenant between God and Israel is still in force. But when we look in the New Testament, the Christians are now the Israel of God. That God has fulfilled his purposes in physical Israel, and now Israel is centered around those who follow his Messiah. Uh, and all the covenant indicators uh, have gone silent for the covenant between God and Israel. God still wants all Israel to be saved. There's no doubt about that in Romans 11. But the salvation of all Israel is not going to be mediated through the covenant that he made with Moses in the days of Moses. It's going to be mediated through what God has accomplished in Jesus. And they don't have Torah observance regarding sacrifice. They have no temple. This is because they have rejected the Messiah and the vindication that of the Messiah as demonstrated in the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, Romans 11. So the covenant that God has made through Jesus Christ is the premier covenant in force. That's the one bound to mankind. That's what all have to submit to, the Jew first and also the Greek. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 16, Colossians 2, 14, 16, and is demonstrated powerfully by the author of the Hebrews letter. So yes, this does mean that physical Israel is not necessarily the people of God. The land promise, which was fulfilled previously, does not need continual fulfillment. The Israelites have no intrinsic theological claim to the land of Canaan. That doesn't mean they perhaps shouldn't live in the land of Canaan. That would be a different argument. But the idea that they should be in the land of Canaan because God gave that land to their ancestors, well, God gave that land to a lot of people's ancestors. Uh, so that's not necessarily enough to privilege uh, that particular group of people. The law of Moses is no longer in effect. To, for one to adhere to it is to fall from the grace of Christ and to return to bondage in Galatians 5, 1 through 4, especially if one is not of Israel. If one is of the physical house of Israel, uh, one can see a, a, a place for observing the customs because it's their heritage, just like we Americans observe the customs of our, her, our ancestors as well. Uh, but there's not going to be any salvation in them. Salvation comes to the Israelites as it comes to Gentiles through obedience to the gospel of Christ. Which is Paul's main powerful point in Romans 1-4. through 4. And so, that's why it's important for us to maintain covenant distinctions. Because there's a lot of 
points at which the covenant that God has made with all mankind in Jesus shares commonality with the covenant he made with the Israelites. You know, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't murder, uh, you shouldn't bear false witness, these things like that. We see that in Romans 13. Scriptures note a lot of these parallels. But they're distinct covenants, and the Hebrews author goes a long way to show that the new is superior to the old in Hebrews 7 through 10. So, what's not bound on Christians in the new covenant is not justifiable by the Old Testament alone. And a lot of people have departed from the faith in Christ because they've uh, insisted on certain observations and practices that were uh, going on in the covenant between God and Israel that are not enforced in this new covenant. Now some say, wait, wait, Malachi 3.6, it says Yahweh does not change. And yeah, no one's saying that God has changed, but his expectations for man based on where man's at. Uh, have changed. And we've seen that before. That's one of those theological problems that you can't escape by just throwing up a verse and walking on. Because in the Old Covenant, uh, in, in the days of the Old Testament, Jacob had two wives who were sisters, right? R Rachel and Leah. But yet, uh, in Leviticus 18.18, 18, it would be sinful to marry sisters under the law. So uh, did God change? No, the expectations changed because of different situations, where people were at, a whole host of reasons. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the image and embodiment of God, God in the flesh, spoke of the contrast between God's intention and what was enshrined in the law about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, 3-9. Um, that Moses, if it hardens your heart, let you divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Again, an indication that uh, it's not God who's changing. It's uh, God has moderated, modulated his expectations of mankind based upon what they, what he whatever sovereign reason he has for it, but it's sufficient for us. That doesn't, because his expectations for people change does not mean he has changed. We can see that with circumcision as well. Before Abraham, circumcision was not bound. Between Abraham through Christ, it was bound and enforced for the people of Israel. And now, in Galatians 5, it's not bound in Jesus. Uh, has God changed? No. But the sign of the covenant has changed. So, God's Lack of changing in terms of who he is does not mean that how he relates to people doesn't change. And so, yes, there are changes in covenant. That's what the scriptures demonstrate and require. And so that is why we must insist that if whatever we're going to do must be rooted in what God has made known in Jesus and in the new covenant, uh, not just because of something that people were doing in the days of Moses or David. And so this is what covenant's like in the Bible. Uh, we've seen how what covenants are, how men made covenants, how God has made covenants of people uh, to to bless them, to work with them, to uh, have His uh, purposes glorified in them, and the covenant that we are under now is a covenant God has made in Jesus, and we understand what we're supposed to do in that covenant by understanding what He has made known as revealed in the New Testament about the life of Christ and the expectation of the kingdom as proclaimed by the apostles, and let's. Therefore, have no one be deceived. The covenant that we must obey is the one in Jesus Christ. And he's already died for us, that we can have forgiveness of our sins. We already have the hope of the, of, of the resurrection set forth in his own resurrection. And so now it's for us to grab hold of those promises through putting our trust in him and living in his embodiment of his character. So let us do so, be reconciled to God, and seek to obtain the resurrection of life and to glorify God and to seek to be loyal to his covenant just like he has proven loyal to us. We again thank you for your consideration of this. We hope that you found it a benefit. If uh, you have, please share it with others on uh, social media. If 
we can be of any service, if you have prayer requests, like talk more about some of these things, like to learn more about us, please find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media. If I can be of any service, please reach out to me at my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.D-E-V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E.com. I again thank you. Have a great day.